Our sermon text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 17. It's going to be Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. We'll read down to Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that you would now bless your word to us. Please help me as I speak. I would speak with the wisdom that comes from above and not according to the foolishness of man nor the foolishness indeed of my own heart. I pray, Father, that you would give us all ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. And be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Amen. May God bless his word to us. And I'll just um, read those first two verses once more. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. We're looking now in Genesis chapter 17 at God establishing in its completeness the covenant that God spoke of in Genesis Chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, you'll remember that God established a covenant with Abram or he cut a covenant with Abram. Abram divided animals according to the commandment of God and God as God appearing, as it were, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animal. Abram himself did not pass between those pieces. He was put in a deep sleep and he saw these things as it were in a vision or some kind of dream perhaps, but know for certain that these things happened. Well, now God further confirms this covenant with Abram, gives him commandments, changes Abram's name to Abraham, gives him promises and gives him a sign of the covenant, something that will mark Abram and his offspring out as the covenant people. As I said to you, we're only going to get through two verses of this this morning. We're going to look at this fairly carefully. The first thing to notice in our text, verse 17, I mean chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, step back to or look back to the last verse of Genesis chapter 16, which is the end of the narrative of Abram concerning Hagar, we see that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael to Abram. 13 years. 13 years have passed. We're not actually told much about what went on in those 13 years. The truth is we're told almost nothing. 
We can assume some things happened. Ishmael grew. We can assume that the um, unrest that had been caused in Abram's household was by now finally settled. We can assume that Abram remained faithful. 13 years. Remember, it was promised to Abram that he indeed would be the father of many nations and he only had one son. That son's name was Ishmael and that son was the son of a slave girl, a concubine, her name being Hagar. 13 years. 13 years of, I would guess, testing. 13 years of having his patience tested. You know, it. I was... Um, We've had the pleasure of having our grandchild stay with us for the weekend and, you know, I noticed something about him and that is, and, and you notice this about all children when they're babies, it's all in the moment. I want something and I want it right now. The, the whole idea to a baby of delayed gratification is basically impossible. If I see something, I want it. And if somebody else is doing something, like he, he, he woke up fairly early this morning, he saw me typing at my computer as I was studying away and of course, what did he want? Pa was touching a computer. Therefore, I must touch a computer. I have to have it, and I have to have it now. And he wasn't happy with the idea of me finishing my studies and then saying, here you go, have a play. No, if I was doing it right at that moment, he had to have it right at that moment. Now, you'd like to think that we grow up and you would like to think that we get a better idea of the passage of time and you'd like to think that in growing in maturity you actually grow in some kind of patience. But the whole world around us is telling us that if you want it, you get it now, constantly. What is every advertisement telling you at the moment? If you want it, you get it now. Interest rates are low. You want the car, walk in, tell them you want it. You don't even have to lay down a deposit. You can walk out with it the next day. Some places manage to pull it off in one day. You can walk out with it that same afternoon. If you want it, you can have it. Take it. It's yours. And it's the same with regards to um, any pleasure that you can name. The pleasure of the moment. If you want it, take it. If you have the opportunity, grasp it. Isn't that what the world's telling us? Delayed gratification, that's for fools. You're an idiot. Abram has spent 13 years living in the land of promise as a sojourner. He hasn't inherited it yet. He doesn't have many children yet. His name means father of many. He has one son or exalted father. He has one son, only one son, and that son is the son of um, the concubine. When Abram was 99 years old, near enough to 100, the Lord appeared to Abram. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him. Now, my friends, I want you to stop and to consider this. And said to him. It's very easy to get caught up on the idea of visions. I want to see it. Seeing is believing is the saying of the world. A vision of the Lord Jesus. I saw the Lord Jesus. I saw this. I saw that. But my friends, find me somewhere in the scripture that God appears where he does not speak. Where he does not speak. Where you don't get words. God, God may appear to a chosen and blessed servant. 
But in the end, God gives words. He speaks. He communicates. He speaks in words and words are there to be understood. Words are there to be taken in. We can dwell upon those words. A vision is a fleeting thing. You know, Abram at this point was 99 years old. In his life, when you put it all together, he may well have only seen his covenant God for no more than an hour. I mean, we're told that the Lord spoke to him and called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. We're not told that he saw the Lord at that time. We know that the Lord appeared to him in Genesis chapter 15 and that he passed between the pieces of of the animals. In 99 years, Abram had only had a certain amount of time, probably a very small amount of time, of actually seeing his covenant God. But he had words. Okay, words. Things that could be written down. Things that can be turned over and over in your mind. Things that you can understand, apply. We think in words. Even people who are visual people, in the end you think in words because you ascribe colours to the things that you saw or you ascribe size, you ascribe properties to the things that you saw. You're always thinking in words. God spoke. In the book of Revelation, that amazingly visionary book that you find at the end of the New Testament, God speaks to the Apostle John and John turns to see the voice. He didn't turn to see God. He turned to see the voice that spoke the words to him. His mind was on the words. God appears to Abram. And says to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. It's the first place in scripture that that name of God appears. El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. God all powerful. God who has all, God who holds all things within his hand. God to whom nothing is impossible. I am God Almighty, God, as it were, reveals himself to Abram, giving him a different name. And um, though we're not studying it today carefully, but in um, verse 5, God changes Abram's name, gives him a different name. Abram becomes Abraham. Exalted father becomes exalted father of many nations. I am God Almighty. This is important. How are names changed? How are names changed? You're born, you're given a name by your parents. They love you. They've given you a name for whatever reason. Some people give names because those names have particular meanings. Some people give names for no other reason than the names sound nice. That's, that's all fine. But they give a name. A friend of mine called his son, I won't give the surname, but Aaron Joshua. I can tell you he did it in hope. He had a reason. Aaron Joshua. He had a reason. How do you change a name? Now, you can informally change a name. Um, In and amongst our family, my father-in-law informally changed his name. Everybody who knew him called him Colin. Why? 
It just so happens that as he grew up, he decided that he didn't particularly like the names that he'd been given and he'd rather be called Colin. His given names were Thomas Russell. He didn't like either Thomas or Russell. And so he reached a certain age and said, you know what, I'm going to introduce myself to everybody as Colin. And so many people who knew him would call him Colin. But he didn't sign a cheque, Colin. He signed a cheque, T.R., his actual formal given names. He didn't do anything that you would do in order to change somebody's name. If you're a lady, you can marry and you take your husband's surname and you've changed your name. I'm not much on hyphenated names. I've got to admit it, you know, the, so, you know, the couples that come together and, and they seem to feel that you just have to have two names to show where you've come from, whatever. Good luck to you. But you change your surname. How has it changed? You actually had a public covenantal ceremony. It's called a marriage or a wedding before witnesses in the presence of God. Something happened. You were willing to agree to something that something was life-changing and your name changed. Or if you really seriously wanted to change your name, you know, I gave the example of my father-in-law who gave himself an informal name change, a nickname if you want to put it that way, so that everybody would use the nickname that he actually liked. If he wanted to formally make his name Colin, what would he have had to do? He would have had to have gotten witnesses. He would have had to have appeared before a court. He would have had to applied for and had the name change approved. And then after that, formally, properly, in what you might call a check signing way, he could have signed his name as Colin Stainer was his surname. God appears to Abram and speaks to Abram with a name that Abram had not heard before. I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Furthermore, he gives Abram another name. Your name shall be Abraham. We're in covenantal territory. We're in formal covenantal territory. A covenant. What is a covenant? It's an agreement. What sort of agreement? It is a formal agreement. In this day and age, the age that we're reading of here, or in the day and age of Abram, it was the most formal, most binding, most sacred agreement that could be struck. A covenant came with penalties for breaking that covenant and those penalties could include death. He was making a covenant. I am God Almighty, God All-Powerful, God who is able to do that which I promise and you shall be Abraham, an exalted father of Nations, a name change, a covenantal name change. When we speak of the covenant of Abraham, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. God granted to Abraham a covenantal name. God revealed to Abraham a covenantal name. Walk before me, says God, and be blameless. Walk before me, let's consider what is to walk before God. 
What is to walk before God? We're going to take into account a lot of scripture here as we think about this idea of walking before God. I'm suggesting to you before we go to the scriptures that to walk before God is to live the life of faith. It's to live the life of believing. To walk in God's ways is to walk faithfully as though the words that God has spoken are true. You know, a lot of people make this distinction and I completely agree. Believing in God is good. Believing in the Lord Jesus is good. I want people to believe in God. I want people to believe in the Son of God. But you can take that word in, out, and then you get something better. Believing God. Believing the Lord Jesus. Believing what God actually says. When you believe what someone actually says, you actually live according to that belief. If someone tells you that car runs on diesel and you believe them, you drive to the fuel station and you put diesel in the tank. You don't put petroleum in the tank unless you're making a big mistake. If someone tells you don't walk across the footbridge because the wood is rotten, well, either you believe them or you don't. If you believe them, you don't walk across the footbridge. And if you don't, well, you take your chances. And that footbridge might fall. It's good to believe in God. It's good to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's even better in believing in God and in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that we believe his words and act, live and respond as though the words spoken are true. In other words, we build our life upon them. Walk before me, says God. Walk before me. Let's consider some aspects of this walking before me. Well, first of all, if a king were to say to you in procession, you walk before me, what has happened? You've been placed, as it were, in a position of honour. You walk before me in this procession. The king is saying to anybody who sees the procession, you are trusted, you are honoured by the king, you are valued by the king, and that to assault this person is to assault the king. The king is conferring trust, position, authority, identity on the person who walks before him. And so there's most certainly that to be found in Abram. God has told him to walk before him. God has placed him in an exalted position. Abram is now, at that time, God's representative upon the earth. That which God is going to speak to Abraham and that which God is going to reveal to Abraham is now the word of eternal life. Walk before me. But as I said, this walk is a walk of faith. Let's, let's have a look at it. We read earlier Psalm 1 and verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked. Think of it. You can walk in the way of the wicked. What would that be? Well, you listen to the things that the wicked have to say. You follow the leadership of the wicked. When the wicked express to you wicked desires, instead of saying, no, not for me, you say, yes, let's go. I can't wait. 
Let's go and do it. Turn to Psalm 119, verse 1. Psalm 119, it's the longest single chapter in the Bible. I heard a fellow once, he got up to preach. He said, today I'm preaching from Psalm 119. He simply read the whole psalm and said, that will be all. And he sat down. It's long. It's longer than some of the books of the Bible. But look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord, what would the law be? Well, it does include definitely the Ten Commandments. If I asked you what is the law and you said Ten Commandments, I'd say yes. Ten Commandments are a good summary of the law of God. They actually are a summary of the law of God. Much of the first five books of the Bible are expansions of the first of the commandments that you find in the ten. Explaining what the ten mean, how the ten are to be obeyed, why the ten have been given. But the law of God comes down to the words of God. Obeying the words of God and not just the words, but the meaning of or the spirit of the words. So that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks of the issues of the heart. He speaks, for example, about adultery. Basically, you know, I'll paraphrase it. I'm going to turn around and turn it around a bit. But basically, he sort of says to married men, for example, it's really good that you haven't slept with any other woman than your wife. But if you walk around with your heart full of adultery, if all you can do is think about how much you would like a different man's wife. Don't think that you're righteous. Don't imagine that you're righteous. Don't imagine that you're blameless. Don't imagine that you're actually walking before God. If your heart's filled with adultery, you are an adulterer, whether or not you've gone through with your lust. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Where's your heart? What are your true desires? That's what we're trying to get at here as we consider the scriptures. Many places in the New Testament speak of the requirement that we walk in accordance with the word of God. I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Verse 1, starting at verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Stop. Let's think. Let's ask some questions. I'll say honestly, when, when I was new to the faith, converted at the age of 21, reading these words, I spent a lot of time wondering how it is that you walk in the spirit and not walk by the flesh. I spent a lot of time trying to understand it. I was looking for the magic formula, the sil- you know, the silver bullet. If you do this, if you do this, you'll magically walk in the spirit and you'll no longer walk in the flesh. But it's there in the text. You've only got to study hard enough and think clearly enough and you get it. 
Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. Something is being said against something here. Something has been said in opposition to something. What's been said in opposition? There's a righteous requirement of the law and opposed to that is walking according to the flesh. A righteous requirement of the law. Walking according to the flesh. Am I saying you must memorise the Ten Commandments? No, I'm saying that it would be good for you to memorise the Ten Commandments, but I'm not saying that you must. Am I saying that you must become legalists, trying, as it were, to force yourself to be righteous in the sight of God through obedience to the law? And my answer to that is no. But I am saying to you as a Christian that as a Christian, God's law does indeed define for you that which is right and wrong. How do you know that you should be faithful to your spouse? The answer is very simple. God has said that you should be faithful to your spouse and not to be faithful is a sin. It's a great sin. How do you know that you should respect the property of others? The answer is simple. God has said to you that you should not steal. Therefore, the person who owns something actually owns it. God has given it to that person and he expects you to respect that. And on it goes. How do you know that you should be honest, that you should not bear false witness? Well, that's in the law. That's how we know. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. To walk according to the spirit is to walk righteously before God. It's to walk in the sight of God in a way that pleases God. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I want you to feel the weight of it. What does God command? Be holy as I am holy. God commands perfect obedience. Okay. In terms of what is the standard against which we are measured, the answer is always perfect obedience. Perfect obedience, my friends. That is God's requirement. And not one of us is righteous through perfect obedience because not one of us renders perfect obedience. But never forget that that is the standard and never be unwilling to be convicted by a failure to reach the standard. You see, that's what happens when we who are in Christ study the law, we realise that we have failed. We are sinners. We don't reach the righteous requirements of God's commandment. And what happens then? You seek the forgiveness that is to be found only in Jesus Christ. We're Christians. You know, the things that made you a Christian, repenting, seeking forgiveness in Jesus' name, turning away from sin, you became a Christian once. There's only one being born again. You're not going to be born again and again and again every day of the week. But the things that make us Christian from the very beginning make us Christian right throughout our whole lives. Always. You see, we as Christians, we should always be being convicted of our sin. Now, if there's some sin that you have set behind you and you can honestly say, I haven't been guilty of that particular sin for years, I got the victory. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's good. That's great. Praise God. I mean it. But my friends, tell me honestly, as you draw closer to the Lord, Is there not always some kind of sin that you have to be going to war with 
And is, is there not always some kind of sin that you ought to be putting behind you, putting to death, as it says in Romans chapter 8, mortifying the flesh? Is there not always something that drives us to our knees seeking forgiveness? You know, those of us who are in Christ, we can honestly say, I'm not what I used to be. I know that I've been changed. And even at the same time, as you say, I'm not what I used to be and I know that I've been changed, you're also saying, and I know that I am not yet what I ought to be. I'm on the way. I'm in the road. I'm going in the right direction. I'm moving. I'm growing in Christ. I'm definitely not what I used to be. And even at the same time, I am not yet that which I ought to be. Our salvation is perfect. But we, whilst we live in this flesh, which Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We, whilst we live in this present evil age, personally, in ourselves, we will never find perfection. We'll grow. We'll grow in the grace of God. We'll grow in grace and faith and Christ-likeness. If you, if you are in Christ and you're empowered by God's Holy Spirit, you will grow in Christ-likeness. That is a fact. And yet you'll never reach that goal because the goal is perfection, God's perfection. Be holy as I am holy. Notice that back here in Romans, this walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit, notice that Paul then changes the metaphor from walking to living. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. God says to Abraham, walk before me. Paul says walking by the Spirit means living in the Spirit, living by the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now, think about it. We've gone from living to what? The way we're thinking, the way your mind works, what your desires are, what you want, what you long for. The first thing that you fight for, my friends, when you become a Christian and you, when you become a Christian, when you're born again in Christ, I'm telling you the truth. You're born into a battlefield, whether you like it or not. There are times when the battle goes hard and there are times when you will know sweet victory. And you, you'll often be between one or the other all of your life. But the first thing that I tell anyone that they should fight for with regards to their Christian life is control of your mind your thought life, your dreams, the things that are turning over in your head day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, control of your own thought life. Fight for your mind. Discipline your thoughts. Discipline them with the word of God. Discipline them with prayer. Discipline them with repentance. Fight for the control of your own mind. Teach yourself, train yourself to think God's thoughts after him and to think in God's way. You'll never get there. But I'm telling you that God, by the power of his spirit, transform you, transforms you, transforms us. And that we must strive to do that which God gives us to do. And the reason we want to do that is God's spirit is changing our desires. So we fight for the control of our mind, our thought life, our dreams. If you've dreamed a wicked dream and it woke you up, the first thing you should do is ask forgiveness. Don't. Don't, um, don't um, what's the word? Don't try and say, well, it wasn't deliberate. After all, I was asleep. 
Look, my friends, you know, Christians accept responsibility. Christians accept responsibility. We don't make up excuses. We don't back away. When God convicts us of sin, we accept that which he has to say. And if we've dreamed an unclean dream, we've dreamed an unclean dream because we had an unclean desire. That's as simple as that. For those who live according to the flesh, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So be setting your mind. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When God said to Abram, walk before me and be blameless, and we're going to look at blameless also in a moment, walk before me, God said to Abram, I am calling you out of the world. I'm calling you out of the world. Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Well, now he's being called, as it were, even further. Remember what we read in Hebrews? He was looking for a city that was not to be found upon the earth. He was looking for something more than the world had to offer. And God calls him to a life of holiness, a life of faith, a life that is lived in the sight of God. Walk before me. Let's just have a look at um, this idea as it's developed in the New Testament. We'll do this a little bit faster. Galatians chapter 5. Once again, the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the power of God's Holy Spirit. If you're walking in the power of God's Holy Spirit, well, the Apostle Paul gives some divisions. The fruit of the Spirit, he says at verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Let's get meddling. Let's get a little bit convicting of sin. If I ask you to characterise your thought life and your life in general, your life of relationship, would you use words like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Would you? I couldn't. I got tested this morning once again. I failed once again. Rolled into the service station on the way down to church. There were people travelling. The pumps were all full. I had to wait. And there were two cars, one next to each other, and they were obviously friends, and they were out for their Sunday drive. And they'd filled up, and they'd walked into the shop, and they'd paid for their fuel, and they came back out, and they're leaning against the car, chit-chatting. And I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking, I've got to get to church. You know what? <laughs> what I felt was not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, nor gentle, nor gentleness nor self-control. I sat there thinking, can't you just look to your left or look to your right and see that there are cars queued up behind you? We're waiting to get onto the pumps to buy our fuel. What is your problem? And you could accuse me of being a Sabbath breaker. I transacted business on the Lord's Day. My friends, against such things there is no law. 
When you walk before the Lord, there is no law against the things that you are doing. When you walk in God's sight. It's also mentioned in Colossians chapter 2. Let's just look quickly there. Verse 6, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, therefore, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, therefore, in the way that you received Christ Jesus the Lord, therefore, considering that you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in him. You're in Christ. You've been saved by God, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been washed of your sins. Walk in him. And if you're walking in him, what would your life look like? Well, in some way or other, it's got to look like his life. Faithful, obedient, submissive to the will of God. With words that are wise, wholesome and building up. Not wicked words. Walk in him. So turning back into Genesis chapter 17, the Lord appears to Abram and says to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me. It's a privilege. He's been placed in a privileged position. My friends, just as we are placed in a privileged position, we are sons of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's been placed in a privileged position. He's been set apart as God's spokesman upon the earth. My friends, just as we have been given a gospel to preach, a word from the king. When we share the truth, my friends, what are we sharing? A word from the king. The king is saying to all the world, repent and believe for I am returning and I will judge the dead and the living according to my word. We're sharing a word from the king. We're living a life in the presence and in the sight of our God. We're walking in obedience to his words. We not only believe in him, we believe that which he has to say. God goes on, walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. What's being said? Well, first of all, I want to suggest to you that Abram is not being told that he, by his efforts, makes himself blameless. He's being told that he is being placed in a position of being blameless. Blameless. He is being told that God is accounting him as a blameless man. Think, if you want to, of what it was that we're told about Abram. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord. Notice it doesn't say he believed in. And he believed the Lord or he believed Yahweh. And he, that is Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. He believed and it was counted as righteousness. Let's have a look at some other men in the Holy Scriptures who are considered to be blameless. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There we have it, blameless and walking. Noah walked in the presence of God. Noah was considered to be blameless. 
But what did we see at verse 8 if you want to look just back? Sorry, we didn't read it, but Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favour. God looked upon Noah with favour. It's not saying that Noah was so super, specially, incredibly, wonderfully good that God just had to love him. God granted favour. What's a favour? It's the giving of something that's not deserved. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. Verse 1. Noah, Job, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this is interesting. I want you to turn over to Job chapter 2, verse 3. Now, it's because Job was righteous and blameless, righteous in the sight of God, blameless, that Job was tested. But now we have here the very words of God himself. Job chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Satan has returned after wreaking havoc in the life of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God's own words concerning Job are that he is a blameless and upright man. Let's just stop, ask you the question, if God counts someone as blameless and upright, does that, for, that therefore mean that such a person will never be tested nor troubled in their life? The answer from Scripture is obviously no, that's not what it means. It's actually because you're blameless and upright that you're going to be tested. And you're not made blameless and upright by your own doings. You're made blameless and upright through faith. Faith in God through Christ our Lord. It's accounted to us as righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is accounted as being our righteousness. And we're tested in that righteousness. Walk before me and be blameless. Job was blameless. Noah was blameless. Psalm 119 verse 1 tells us that blessed is the one whose way is blameless. Turning back to um, Genesis chapter 17. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Walk in my sight. Walk in faith. Walk believing the words that I give you. The consequence of that is that in my sight you are Blameless. That description of being blameless, God saying be blameless. You could liken it, I guess, in a way to God saying in creation, be Adam, be the man. And God saying in creation, be Eve, be the woman, be the male, be the female. I have made you to be something, be that thing. Well, God is saying to Abram, I have accounted you righteous. I have placed you, as it were, in my, in my procession. You walk before me. 
You will be blameless. You will be blameless. You see, we know that Abram has sinned. There are two failures that we've seen already in the book of Genesis. He went down to Egypt. He put his wife on the line. She's my sister. She's not my wife. He didn't trust the Lord. He didn't speak the truth. And then his wife came along and offered him the concubine. Hagar. Maybe we'll get children that way. And he didn't trust the Lord and he didn't reject Hagar. You've already seen his failures. He's a sinner. As you and I are sinners. But God has called him into his presence. God has called him into his royal procession and said, you walk before me, be blameless. God has justified him. God has chosen to see him as having been cleansed of his sins. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Turn to Psalm 32. Reading verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed. His way is blameless. His walk is before God. He has sought forgiveness. He has been given forgiveness. His sin has been covered. The Lord does not count his iniquity against him. Blessed. Blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Your position in my sight, Abram, is that you are blameless. He's basically saying to Abram, you will sin and then you will seek my forgiveness and I will forgive you your sins. And you have sinned and I have forgiven your sins. I choose to cover you. Your sin is covered. I'm counting no iniquity against you. In my sight, you are blameless. Walk by faith and be blameless. My friends, to anyone who is not in Christ, I'm telling you, that that simple um, expression of the gospel, repent and believe, walk before God and be blameless. You will be cleansed of your sins. Reading on. Genesis chapter 17, and now we're moving into verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram's given here to understand that that which God now speaks of is a fuller confirmation of that which he he, uh, witnessed in, in the passage that we call Genesis chapter 15. That was a great and a glorious thing. God himself passed between the pieces of the animal, which means that God himself has basically said, if I fail, let the penalty of death fall on me. And now that covenant is being more fully revealed and being more fully confirmed. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and I want us to look at the promise and may multiply you greatly and may multiply you greatly. Let's consider the promise. Abram fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, 
Jacob had 12 sons. By the time the people of Israel went down into Egypt, it was a household of some 400 people. By the time they came out of Egypt, it was a household of millions. Millions. But I want to suggest to you, and we know this, remember we read in Hebrews chapter 11 earlier, Abram saw more, understood more than just the fact that he was actually going to have a child who would inherit the promise and that that child would have other children, etc., etc., and he would leave offspring on the earth. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have families, to have generations. Brings joy to the heart of anyone who has it, who has that blessing, I'm telling you now. It's a good thing. But remember, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that Abram understood more than simply having many children, generation by generation. The scripture tells us this. We read earlier, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12 reads, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Speaking of Abraham. Now, consider the computing power that we have available to us today. The, statistic, the, the, the ability to crunch numbers, to work statistics, etc., etc. We could probably take a fairly accurate count of the number of Jews upon the earth today. And we could basically work that out through the generations. But if, if you're, if you, how would I put this? Let me put it another way. If you're only thinking of Jews as the descendants of Abraham, well, it's actually a definite number and it can be computed. That's what I'm trying to say. If you're only thinking of the biological offspring of Abraham, I'm saying it's a definite number, it's a finite number, and it can be calculated, it can be computed. But the scripture tells us something different, and that's what I want us to understand. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Start our reading at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. The book of Galatians. The Galatians have... um, fallen under false teaching and were starting to believe that works gave them righteousness. And Galatians is Paul's answer. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
Suddenly, you've got a number that's much harder to work out. I would suggest you can't work it out. Why? Because all who have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ are being accounted as sons of Abraham. Now you're talking millions and billions. There were converts that we don't even know about. If there was one thief converted on the cross, how many others were converted in the last hours of their life? That as far as we're concerned, it may never have happened. How many millions upon billions have given their life into the hands of the Lord Jesus and received the forgiveness of their sins and they're counted as being the offspring of Abraham? That I may make, just reading again, Genesis chapter 17, verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. An innumerable number. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John gets this vision of this. After I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. A multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, counted as the offspring of Abraham because they've shared in the faith of Abraham, that belief in the word of God, believing the promises of God, that I may make my covenant with you and may multiply you greatly. If if you're going to ask me, well, did Abram understand that that meant children upon this earth during his life? The answer is yes, he definitely did. He understood it that way. But the scripture tells us that he understood more than that, that he looked further into the future, that he understood that God was establishing something with him that was more than just the promise of physical offspring. Scripture tells us that he understood that God was making him his representative before the nations and that from him would come many, many, many spiritual children. Many, many, many. And so we find that Abram was set, as it were, in the place of the first Adam. What do I mean by that? He was set in the place of the first Adam. Well, what was it that God said to Adam and Eve when he created them? If you want to go to Genesis in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. We'll stop there. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every other living thing that moves on earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Have many, many, many children. Or how about Noah? Noah has come out of the ark. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. We'll start reading there. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's God's promise to Abram? I will multiply you greatly. My friends, Abram fills the earth. We could say in a manner of speaking, He's filling the earth. Now, ultimately, ultimately, it is God 
who I'm sorry, it is Jesus who reveals God to us. It's the only begotten Son who makes the Father known. John chapter 1, verse 18. Ultimately, it is Jesus who is filling the earth with his people, with his image. But here in the time of Genesis, in the time of Genesis chapter 17, Abram is the one who's appointed to stand before God, to walk before God, to be blameless in the sight of God, to have many, many offspring. My friends, we are in Christ. We actually have clearer and better promises than Abraham, than even Abraham. We are in Christ. Abraham saw Christ from afar, the Lord Jesus tells us. In the book of John, Abram saw my day. He rejoiced to see it. He saw him from afar. He saw him over the hundreds and hundreds of years. But my, my friends, we've got, Jenna, we've got uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, on it goes. We know whom the Saviour is. We know that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he is the eternally begotten Son of God. We know that he is the promised Son who would crush the serpent's head. We know that by faith he has brought many, many children into the world. Nations are born. Nations are raised up. Nations sometimes are driven down. Kings are born. My friends, God's word to us is very similar to that which was spoken to Abram. But it's based on an even clearer revelation of God himself. My friends, it's up to us. We are in a covenant relationship with God. When, when Jesus sat the disciples down to the first communion meal, he said, this is the new covenant sealed in my blood. This is the covenant. My friends, we are in the covenant. We're in the new covenant. We're in that saving covenant, that sovereignty of grace, that covenant of salvation. We have a better covenant. It's better. We're told in the book of Hebrews it's a better covenant because our covenant head, the Lord Jesus, is our high priest. He's enthroned in heaven. He's our king. He's our priest. He's our prophet. He is our everything. He is our saviour. My friends, when God says to us, walk before me and be blameless, we should be bold. We should be fearless. I'm just saying what we should be. We should be bold. We should be fearless. We should be filled with joy. We're God's people and we've got a reason for being here. We're walking before God and when people see us, they should be able to see God in us, both as a collective, as a church, as individuals, as families. They should be able to see the presence of God in us, with us, through us and we should be bringing to the people the word of God. Repent, believe, be cleansed of your sins, Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk before God in obedience. It is the only life. Blessed is the man. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures. We give you thanks for the gift of faith by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear and believe that which you have to say to us. We give you thanks for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom we know from the book of Matthew was a son of Abraham, the son of Abraham.
Father, we pray that we would go forward, walking before you, being blameless and rejoicing in your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.